Uh, tough passage uh, to look at. Uh, let's pray uh, that we will learn from it today. Uh, dear Lord, we do thank you uh, that you uh, speak through your word. We thank you that you ha- we have your Holy Spirit to guide us. And so, Lord, as we reflect on, on this passage this morning about what it is to be your people, uh, I pray that we will be both uh, encouraged and challenged uh, to seek your glory more and more. Amen. Talking about money uh, is always fraught. Uh, Partly we feel our money is hard-earned and precious, and so we're wary of anyone who would like to take it from us. Uh, And no one likes to feel scammed or manipulated in terms of how we use our money. Uh, Partly we don't want to feel judged for how we spend our money, and equally we don't want to be judged for not having much money. And perhaps added to that, uh, we all like the idea of being generous, uh, but so often, uh, if I just reflect on myself, uh, generosity is the poor cousin to all those other things that I think would be really helpful to have in my life. And so with that comes a certain level of guilt about money and perhaps a defensiveness Uh, where we're sort of quick to justify our choices and we're a little bit outraged uh, at anyone who would be so rude or intrusive uh, to ask questions about how we would spend money. So money's deeply personal. Uh, So as we look at this passage today, I want to pick up three themes and you've got to pick the odd one out, okay? So I'll read three, tell me, you know, just in your mind. So unity, generosity and deception. So, yeah, we, when we started the reading today, it all seemed so positive, uh, and yet it turned so quickly uh, when we looked at that, that account of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, but hopefully, as we look at this passage, we get a picture of what, the, what we should be uh, as God's people, you know, both the good and the bad of it. If you've missed the plot so far in Acts, then let me give you the very, very short version. So in Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 8, Jesus sets out his plan for his disciples and he says, But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in the opening chapters of Acts, we've seen how those words are being fulfilled. So with the help of the Holy Spirit, the apostles are proclaiming the good news uh, clearly and boldly. And through the Holy Spirit, people are hearing it and they're recognising acknowledging Jesus as Lord. And as that happens, people come to Christ as individuals, it's their personal response to God, but they then gather together as a community of Christians. Uh, So our passage begins in verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. And we heard those words earlier in the prayer that we read about our unity together. Uh, One in heart and mind speaks to the unity which we share together, but it's not primarily focused on one another. Uh, It starts with our relationship with God. And if we get that wrong... Uh, if we don't recognise that that God is the one that unifies, then anything we achieve together will be fleeting. 
And it's more involved than simply, you know, having the same sort of common interest in Jesus or joining the same team or even attending the same church or the same church service because it's about what Christ has done. Uh, Because we have the Holy Spirit, we are connected as family. Uh, And actually, biological families at their ideal best, at what we would long them to be, uh, are a fantastic picture of what we would love for ourselves as a church. Because even though we drive each other a little bit nuts sometimes in our families, uh, we do love each other. Uh, We want to see each other thrive and it pains us when we see one another struggle. Uh, We take pleasure in building one another up and we want to spare them the pain of falling down. We want to rejoice when they rejoice and we want to grieve when they grieve. I can whinge about my family But if you whinge about my family, about exactly the same thing, then very quickly I'm going to become very protective and defensive uh, because we love our family. Uh, And as a Christian biological family, I want to see our kids and us love Jesus first. We want that to be our first priority. And that means sometimes we're going to make choices which are painful Uh, but they're painful for their good. And it's that type of depth of connectedness that we long for in our biological families, but, but equally that we long for as people of God, as we are brothers and sisters together. And one expression of that unity was how we are generous with what we've got and how we commit to the needs of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So continuing in verse 32, if you've got it in front of you, uh, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, in them all, that there was no needy person amongst them. Now, what Luke is describing here isn't a Christian commune. Okay, so this isn't sort of the precursor to 1960s hippie movement, uh, except without the the sex thing. Uh, But it was about sharing uh, and recognising what they had was not just theirs to keep for themselves, but theirs to use for the good of others. So they still had personal possessions. And we see that in this passage, that you know, from time to time, people bought what they had and brought them to the apostles' feet. Uh, we know from reading Acts already that they still had individual homes and people met in those homes uh, you know, to share hospitality together. Uh, and again, when Paul writes, he writes to various home churches, which are owned by people. So this is not about communalism, uh, but it is about recognising how we are generous with what we've got. You know, it's the idea that my home is your home. And so uh, Jesus puts it like this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so in this passage, we see that lived out together. You know, I own a 2009 Toyota Avensis. Uh, it's much maligned by my children because uh, it's the classic family wagon, but it does get from A to B. Uh, I do own it technically, uh, but God has given it to us 
to use in his service. Uh, we use it for our family, but it also gives us the opportunity to give people lifts and, and things like that. Uh, and often it's not even just about the car. God doesn't want me just to use the car. That's actually relatively convenient. But sometimes he wants me to be driving the car uh, and to be, make myself available for the good and for the sake of other people. Uh, we've been very blessed uh, as part of my role in, in the church uh, that we're given a home. As, as part of it. Uh, we get to use that home for our family, uh, but we also get to gather together each week with our Connect group uh, to open up God's Word and pray together and praise God. Uh, we get to share meals together in our home. Uh, we get to offer a bed to people uh, when they need it. Uh, so it is ours, but at the same time, it's ours to use in the service of the Lord. You know, we don't all have the same possessions. And God is not calling us to use what we do not have. But he is calling us to be generous and to hold our possessions with soft hands that we might use it to support the needs of those people around us. And if you're already giving generously, then take pleasure in sharing what God has given you. Take pleasure in seeing how it does support the needs of others. Take joy in that. Uh, I think sometimes, uh, if you're anything like me, you know, we give generously, but we don't give graciously. You know, we, we, we hand it over almost sort of tight-fisted, you know, take it if you've got to, or if I must. Um, you know, so we're still sort of technically doing the right thing, just with all the wrong attitude. Um, that's, that's not the picture here. Uh, the picture here is this generous desire to want to use what we've got joyfully for the sake of those people in need. So sharing is about possessions, um, but it is also about money. And so we see the example, don't we, of Barnabas, who has some property, so he's obviously a relatively wealthy person, and he sells that property and converts that possession into cash to be able to use that, again, for the needs of the people in the community. Uh, for some, that need would have arisen because they've become Christians. So they perhaps are ostracised from their family because of their choice. They've turned their back on their cultural heritage. And that would have been a huge deal. Uh, for others, and we see it again in, in the book of Acts, uh, it's like the widows who are in a position where by circumstance they can't support themselves and so they have a particular need. And in Jerusalem and in uh, the Roman world of that time, there's really no such thing as sort of systematic social welfare. Uh, the government doesn't get involved. So you either uh, rely on your family uh, or you beg uh, or you steal. Uh, they're sort of the three basic options. Uh, but here we've got this Christian community forming where not out of obligation but out of love, they're supporting the needs of others. And of course, for us as a Western civilization uh, who have been influenced by our Christian heritage, we've, we see how welfare has been integrated into our society. So it's moved from just a small community or the individual to how do we as a society support those who are most in need. Uh, it doesn't remove our responsibility as Christians to support those in our church who are in need, but our role has changed. It's a little bit different to the way it used to be. So a few things to say about need and generosity. The first thing is that generosity is an act of grace. So we don't have the right to demand 
that someone else be generous. Now, God can call us to be generous, but I can't turn around to say to someone, you should be generous to me. Uh, that's their choice. That's their prerogative. They are free to do as they will. And if we do presume on the generosity of others, then we need to heed the words of Paul when he says, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. So we can't presume on other people's generosity, but equally, when we are in a position to be generous, we are called to be generous. I think, secondly, we need to be careful uh, not to justify why we can't be generous today. Uh, Because there's always going to be a need uh, that we feel is more pressing than someone else's needs. And so, you know, the temptation is always to say, I will be generous tomorrow. You know, so, you know, once I've got more work or once I've paid off the car or the house or the holiday, uh, then I'll become more generous. Um, But, of course, that day never quite comes, does it? You know, if we don't have a generous attitude and a generous spirit, then there'll always be something uh, that will become a great reason why we can't do it today. Uh, Almost invariably, uh, those who are generous with a little uh, then become generous with a lot. Uh, But if we're not generous with a little, uh, we very rarely change along the way. I think thirdly, uh, from this passage, uh, generosity isn't just limited to our direct church family. Uh, So we we do have a commitment to one another uh, as Christians here at Shell Harbour City Anglican. Uh, But as the gospel went out uh, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, then new Christian communities were formed. And those churches saw that they had a responsibility and they had a desire to support other Christians in need. And so there's this fantastic picture, you know, a number of years later, where the Macedonian church is supporting the Jerusalem church when they're in a time of hardship. And so again, this is how Paul describes it. In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. And I think finally, need includes supporting our ministry together. Uh, So when you choose to give, it's not you giving to us. We are all the us. Uh, We are one community of people, and we've decided to pool our resources so that we can do more together than we could do individually. And so part of that uh, is is my role. Uh, So I could just come and preach on Sundays, and that would be an option. Uh, And certainly that's the sort of role that Paul took. So he worked, and at the same time he was an evangelist. Uh, But what we've chosen to do is to free me up with more time and to free our staff up with more time so we can spend more time uh, leading, uh, teaching, and speaking and serving. Uh, so that we can grow together as a community of Christians. And again, that was a a biblical principle. So Paul puts it like this. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So it doesn't mean we have to do it that way, but that's the way we've chosen to do it because it allows us to do more together. Uh, Money also gives us the capacity for the, the practical things of ministry life. Now, like we've got a, a building that we meet in. 
uh, we can make ourselves a little more comfortable uh, as we meet in this building. Uh, it allows us to be able to do more in terms of resourcing our ministry and how we communicate to our community. But wherever we spend money, it's always about how do we continue to live as salt and light in the world. It's always about the gospel. How will spending this money help us glorify God in this place? Uh, and sometimes we'll spend the money, you know, we won't always agree on the best way to spend money, that happens. But that should be our motive. It's about wanting to see God glorified in our community. And if we're going to do that with any sense of clarity and conviction, then we really do need God's help, don't we? Uh, and that's what's driving this community. So verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, all that there were no needy persons amongst them. So it's God's power that's graciously working. The resurrection of Jesus is the great confirmation of his lordship. He has dealt with sin and submitting to his lordship is the only way that we come under his protection and it's the only way that we enjoy the benefit of his lordship. Uh, that's what we've come to understand as Christians and that should then overflow into our love and generosity and compassion for those in need. So, so far in this passage, uh, Luke has described an almost utopian society, isn't it? It just looks fantastic. You sit there and you go, I would love to be a part of that. And then we have this account of Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, Luke includes uh, this particular event because he wants to make a very simple point. Give lots of money or God will prematurely cause you to drop dead. So, okay, that's probably not the point. Uh, I have absolutely no doubt that someone somewhere has attempted to draw that type of application. So let me say it as clearly as I possibly can that that is completely and utterly false. That is not his point at all. This is not about coercing generosity. Uh, it is about deception. And so uh, we see uh, in this passage a couple of things. Firstly, the deception's deliberate. Okay, so verse 1 of chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself but bought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. The second thing to note is that he was under, or they were under, no obligation to sell the property, and they were under no obligation to bring it all and put it at the apostles' feet. So verse 4, Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have lied not just to human beings, but to God. So it seems, uh, we don't know it, but it seems that their motivation for their deception was about you know, wanting to be recognised and respected within the church community. You know, they wanted to go down like Barnabas as a, as a person who gave generously. And at the same time, you know, they wanted to keep a little bit back for themselves. You know, perhaps it was an issue of security, uh, perhaps they just wanted, you know, to keep some of those comfort's of life. And th there's not, nothing wrong with that, 
Just don't lie about it. And so the offence is, is outlined in verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit? And again, when Sapphira comes in a couple of hours later, Peter says to her, how could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? Yeah, it's kind of ironic as you look at those verses that as Christians, we believe in the spiritual. We believe in God. Uh, We believe in the Holy Spirit. Uh, We believe that there is a spiritual world that's outside of simply our natural experience. Uh, But for most of us, I suspect, we get a little awkward talking about Satan. Uh, It just feels a little bit superstitious. Uh, But, you know, as we talk about sin and temptation, as we think about all those unwanted desires and feelings that we have in life, we have to acknowledge that there is power behind those struggles. You know, it doesn't take away from our personal responsibility uh, or our culpability, but Satan's there behind the scenes, kind of like oxygen for a fire, just, just fueling things as they go. And in this situation, the result is a willingness to lie, and not just to God, but to people. And God's justice is swift and extreme. Like, disturbingly so, isn't it? Like, so verse 10. The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. You know, I think uh, it was so extreme because uh, it was such a formative time in God's work as he establishes his new people, as he establishes the church. And in fact, we see a similar account, and it uses very particular words that link to the account, uh, in the book of Joshua, uh, when Israel were entering the promised land. So in this sort of critical formation moment, we see two things. We see God disproportionately blessing his people. And we see these incredible signs and wonders. Uh, But at the same time, we also see discipline and judgment. So this passage is not saying that all death and sickness is the result of a particular sin in your life. But it's certainly a warning to take sin seriously and to recognise that God does actually judge. Uh, He might not judge in the way that in the moment, you know, right here and now. And in fact, often I think we just get away with it. You know, we sin, seems to be no negative consequence. You know, she'll be right. Uh, But this passage reminds us that that God does see, uh, that God does judge. And so if you're not a Christian, then let me say, we need to, you need to repent and believe and be saved. And if you are a Christian, you need to repent because you are saved. But what we can't do, particularly for the Christians, is say that we are saved, uh, say that we are Christians, but then continue to live in our sin as if it doesn't make any difference. If, If that's us, then we really do need to stop and examine ourselves because God doesn't just look at the way we respectably present ourselves to society. Yeah, we can put on a good front here, We can put on a good front with family and in all sorts of different ways. Uh, But God sees the heart. Uh, And God knows our hypocrisy. And so we need to recognise that in ourselves 
but also know that there's forgiveness. So when we repent, God forgives. And as a church, when we see sin, uh, we need to take that seriously and we need to love each other enough to challenge each other on it. You know, not from a position of superiority or you know, sort of self-righteousness, but humbly uh, and motivated by a desire for their godliness and for our unity. And it's a desire to see one another grow in Christ. And so we need to be slow to anger, uh, gracious uh, when we confront sin, quick to repent, and quick to forgive. So some bottom lines for our passage. Three things. Uh, We need to thank God for the unity that we have in Christ, and we need to live it out. Uh, So we have it, we need to live it. Uh, Secondly, uh, we need to pray for a generous spirit. Uh, that God might convict us so deeply uh, of his love for us and our love for others that that just overflows into generosity. Not just in what we do, but the attitude that drives behind it, that joyful generosity, that we take pleasure in giving to support the needs of others. And secondly, we need, or lastly, thirdly, we need to hate deception, uh, starting with our own, uh, not just out of a fear of judgment, Uh, but out of a love for God uh, and a desire to see him glorified and praised. Amen.